0: This is the Front Page Podcast from Red and Black. I'm your co-host and podcast editor, Jim Bass. In this episode, I sit down with Dr. Michael G. Thomas, Jr., a professor at the University of Georgia teaching financial planning, housing, and consumer economics. We discuss the act of budgeting for college students and the many challenges facing these students as they begin their independence. Support for this podcast is provided by the Cox Institute for Journalism, Innovation, Management, and Leadership. For more information, visit grady.uga.edu slash cox institute. Whether you're struggling to pay for tuition, working to make a rent payment, or just trying to save enough money for your own self, many college students have to quickly adapt into the world of budgeting. The intimidating topic plagues students across the nation as they try to manage a healthy workload, a social life, jobs and internships, and everything in between. Tackling the budgeting topic can be nearly impossible, but can be a very important skill to gain as students move out of college and enter their careers. Dr. Michael Thomas Jr. joined me in the studio to discuss the many pitfalls that students fall into when it comes to overspending, and gives his most important tips that can lead to a brighter and more healthy budgeting strategy for students. All right, well, we've welcomed uh, Dr. Michael Thomas into the studio and I guess introduce yourself. Yeah, yeah, uh, Dr.
1: Michael Thomas. Uh, I'm fortunate enough to be able to serve here at the University of Georgia in the financial planning, housing, and consumer economics uh, department, so glad to be here.
0: Absolutely, and uh, I wanted to know how long you've been in the career of like teaching finance and, and things like this.
1: Yeah, so in the wealth, on the wealth management side more specifically uh, since 2019. Uh, I've had f- a few careers, one, uh, serving as an auditor, uh, so a lot of transferable skill sets that apply. And I think that sometimes students are a little surprised when we, when we take a deeper dive into looking at financials, uh, because it is, it's important as it relates to fundamental analysis and understanding the health of an organization, And then beyond that, I worked for several years as an administrator in the higher education space, but on the private side. Uh, So I have some very unique experiences with higher ed, with accounting, and then now uh, having my PhD in financial planning and uh, doing work and serving in this way, which for me is incredibly rewarding. And I love having the opportunity to catch students at this touchpoint. Um, because we, we have very real, honest conversations about financial well-being, and not just as an individual, but within the system, right? It's one thing to talk about personal finances in isolation, but we also have to talk about it with, about it from the perspective of, well, how does this look with your significant other, right? Yeah. Or let's take this further. Maybe you have to have some difficult conversations with mom and dad, yeah. Because this is a system as it relates to what generational wealth creation actually looks like. That means we have to have all these conversations and make sure that everyone's doing what they're supposed to do. Because if one person drops the ball, it impacts the entire system. So we, we start with self and then we start to broadly build out these concepts and these ideas. Yeah. And not just from a knowledge point, but from a neurological, psychological emotional, we talk about historical factors, uh, psychology, like all of it comes into play. So it's a really cool time to be in my space because we're, we're really at the point to where we're really starting to embrace the holistic dynamics of individuals uh, and how complex personal finances actually are. And, and I think it's important for students to know that just because you know better doesn't necessarily mean that you do better. Those are two different skill sets. So in my class, I, I take that pressure off. So we focus on the skill set of knowing. And then we also focus on the skill set of doing. Right. Uh, and it, I think it's incredibly helpful. And it, and, it, and it lessens any feelings of guilt or shame in terms of I'm just bad with money and I knew it. Right. No, you're learning. You're becoming. You're growing. This is what growth looks like. And I would rather them do it while they're here at the university than figure it out the hard way on their own. While you're here, you have tons of support. You can ask questions. You make a mistake, right? You don't have to do it in isolation. You can do it in community.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like that is something in in college that, you know, you do end up learning. Kind of like how in high school you're not (laughs) supposed to learn the social settings, but you do learn how to be a social person. Yes. Um, In college you learn – the hard way, how to learn finances, and, and I mean, I agree with the same way. And
1: it's it's hard, in a good way, because there's so many different influences. There's so many distractions in college. There's you're being pulled in so many directions. So developing the capacity to to say no and to be able to discern what are the what are the things that really pr- produce value, enjoying your life. Uh, figuring that out now and learning how to navigate this now is a transferable skill that serves every, will serve everyone throughout their lives. Not learning it now means that you perpetuate it into your careers and things of that nature, and you're going to have to learn that lesson sooner or later. So I would rather students learn it now.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And obviously this is kind of touching more on college students and, like, budging with that yeah. and, like, you know, working about finances. Like, I mean, you've dealt with a lot of college students so far. A lot. And, Yes. And what are some co- common mistakes that you see college students making that that maybe that they that they could learn like right off the bat to be like, "Oh, I can't I yeah. shouldn't do that" or anything like that. Any yeah, I think
1: I think the the biggest mistake that college students make is how they perceive their identity, right? This and so uh, budgeting is a tool. The tool is only as effective as the person using it. And so if someone's going to budget and budget effectively, they have to have direction. They have to have vision for themselves. They have to understand the the importance of it. They have to deal with maybe any emotional things that may come with it because budgeting can cause anxiety. We don't talk about this, but it does. And then we then we wonder why people don't do it. Well, there's anxiety, so we need to understand where this anxiety is coming from. Um, and then to be able to help that person in very small steps to navigate a process to budget. Maybe not the whole thing, but maybe we just budget one key area. And one of the biggest expenses that college students have is dining out. Right? <laughs> or let me tell you this one. This is actually a really big one. Vending machines. Mm. Yes, huge. So we do a personal finance project in my class where I have students. Initially what they do is they, they just track their spending. That's all I'm asking And I I said, I don't want your representative on this project, right? I I don't don't want the best version of you. I want the you that's going to spend exactly how you're going to spend and just become more self-aware. And I had one particular student that at the end of the first month, he realized that he had spent close to $200 at the vending machine. Now, mind you, it was just in the flow of his day, right? So in the morning – I go maybe get a Coke from the vending machine, yeah. and then afternoon, I'm tired, I might go get some M&Ms. It's just yeah. like, just these little small things over time, but you don't see them in an aggregate. It's just $2 here, yeah, $2 there. And then tomorrow, you forget that you spent 2 or $6 if you're not tracking and navigating that process. So really for college students, it's understanding the magnitude of the small decisions that they're making every day, and how that's compounding, right? And so, and for and for that student in particular, the beautiful thing about it was that, so after the end of the first project, he noticed that, oh wow, I'm spending way too much on vending machines yeah. or is at the vending machine. And he said, I also want to find some money to invest. And he didn't have any money to invest, right? So he said, well, what if, so the second part of the project is, now we know what our spending is, you go through and identify maybe at least one item where you want to cut back on, and then a, and then create a financial goal for yourself for something that you want to accomplish. So you're cutting back on something and we're working towards something that we're growing money or investing money, whatever a student wants to do, or saving for a trip, like yeah. you're in college, right? Um, have fun. so but just plan it, right <laughs> so uh, So what he ended up doing. Was that he said, well, if I could cut back on my use of the vending machine in which he uh, he, at the vending machine in which he did considerably. So I think it was maybe I think he'd only spent maybe thirty dollars that following month and the rest of that money. He took it and started applying it towards a savings account. So literally. And this is this is a one month shift. Right. And so imagine going through your collegiate career. We're talking about small things compounded over time. Let's say, and I think he was a sophomore, let's say that we never did this. And he's gone, he already had his freshman year, developed the habits then, sophomore year, junior year, senior year, right? And let's say that he never became aware of this habit. Think about the magnitude of spending 100, $150 at the vending machine every month while you're in college over four years. Yeah. y'all y'all do the math right this is this is significant okay and then so what he ended up doing was saying well i want to save and he could and he completely adjusted some things without having to earn any more money to be able to achieve his goal he was becoming more aware he also realized uh, in a write-up that a lot of it was kind of like stress and that's how he was managing stress sugary sweets and things that nature and then so he started to develop some practices uh, to help mitigate his stress. So now, let's bring this big picture here. When we talk about college students and spending, yes, we could have easily stopped the conversation at, hey, you're you're using the, the, <laughs> the vending machines significantly, and then asking, and then just saying, well, from there, let's just figure out how you can use the vending machines less from a financial lens, right? But because of the way that our department works, we're really big about psychology, financial therapy and all these other different things. Um, I, I encouraged him to dig a little bit deeper and say, hey, I, when you go to the vending machine, I want I want you to assess the time of day in which you go. Um, what are your emotions? What are your feelings? Right. Like what's what's how is it, this habit is formed for reason? Is it from boredom? Is it X, Y and Z? And he did it. He did that. And he realized that for him, it was, it was a way that he, he dealt with stress. It was a coping mechanism. So then we got into the, well, how do you, what are some effective ways that you can deal with stress? Now, mind you, at the University of Georgia, we have all these amazing well-being uh, programs here. So we found a, a wellness program for him to go and they, they helped him deal with the stress. So it actually wasn't the money piece. That was the main piece. It was the how you deal with your stress to prevent you from going to the vending machine for the first place, right? And that's really how he got his spending down to 30. It wasn't just willpower. It just just wasn't I know better. It just wasn't like those things. Or I should be saving and investing in the magic of compound interest and all that good stuff. Mind you, I don't know many students that just invest just because they hear about the magic of compound interest. Right, Because it's still this magical thing that nobody really believes. Yeah. Right, There's very few students that say, oh, compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world. Yeah. I'm going to invest today. Nobody does it. Yeah. But by actually dealing with stress, helping him to clarify his vision and things that he wanted to achieve, and reducing the friction between how he could go about doing that is ultimately what got him from step A uh, to step D, ultimately. So one of the big things is, is spending dining, eating out, and then doing it socially. And so what I've realized for a lot of college students, and this is for adults too, because we fall, if, if for any of my college students who are out there listening to this right now, don't ever let an adult make you feel as if you're making decisions that they're currently not making because in many instances they, they are and they're just categorizing it differently. And I can say this because I work in this space and I see clients. Um, so peer pressure is a really big deal, right? So if there's the, the FOMO, the, the fear of missing yeah. out, so you'll have students who will spend money on X, Y, and Z or run up a credit card because they want to be engaged socially in a way to where they're feeling as if, hey, I'm not losing out opportunity. I'm not losing out on ways to connect with friends, things of that nature. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, But if you plan ahead and you say, hey, yeah, I'd love to go to downtown. I would love to go downtown and hang out with everybody. Um, One of the best strategies we've talked about in our class is like, hey, go downtown. But set a spending plan for yourself to say that, hey, the, the most that I can do is maybe $30. And I will. I can still be with my friends, I can still hang out, have a good time, but I've set some healthy boundaries for myself so that by the end of the night, I'm not, or the next day, I'm not feeling regret because, well, I did get to go hang out with my friends, but I spent all this money and I knew that I didn't need to spend it. You can have the best of both worlds, right, by creating healthy boundaries. And I think that that's difficult for, for college students to establish because there's it's so peer centric, right? And I completely get it. Um, so you don't necessarily have to say no. Um, you can just think about this from a perspective of well, what is my capacity to engage in this activity? And I think that's a healthier way of thinking about it, because I'm not a all or nothing type person. It's where can we find healthy balance in the middle? And that's the tough that's the tough work. But I feel like if you do the tough work now, guess what? When you graduate and you and you're in your career, you know how to find that healthy balance so that now you're not influenced by that peer group, and that could be an entry-level position, and then let's say you get promoted, now guess what, you're navigating a different dynamic here with people who are earning more money, they're eating at the nicer restaurants, they're driving a better car, they all have a little bit more square footage in their home. Right. Yeah. So if, if we don't address it now in college or at entry level employment position, then if we're in middle management somewhere and we haven't addressed it then, then guess what? We start to see lifestyle creep. Right. And then let's say we get another promotion. Now I'm with the VPs and the executives. They're all driving a little bit nicer car. They have more square footage. Yeah. <laughs> They're eating. Like there's no end to what this looks like. Yeah. So that's what I meant earlier by doing the hard work now and developing the capacity to create healthy boundaries for self so that you can enjoy social dynamics, uh, but you're not being driven to make decisions that go outside of your capacity to do things. Absolutely. Was that helpful? That was because very that, helpful. Because I felt like that's a, that's very real yeah. for college students. That was extremely. It's dining out yeah. and it's to peer relationships. So I we can talk about budgeting all day, but- if we're not addressing just the culture of college life doesn't really matter a whole lot Yeah. because the the pain point of the budget is gonna be less than a pain point of how my peers are gonna think about me, right? So we have to address, well, can I say no and still feel as if the people who I consider are my friends will still be my friends, Yeah. right? That's a very tough question. But how else will you know who's actually your friend, if you can't say no, or if you if you can't say, hey, well, I don't have it, and I can't go out tonight, then if you really have friends, they're gonna say, well, we can just go to the grocery store, make some spaghetti, and just play board games. Like we're we're with you, right? Um, but that's how that's how you figure it out. Right? <laughs> <laughs> No's a superpower in college because you really get to figure out like who are your real friends and things of that nature. And people are gonna support you and not guilt you or shame you and say, Oh man, you should still come out. Like it's it's a part of the process. I get it. Um, but being able to navigate that stuff, and we call this in the the literature being socially indifferent, um, is it's a superpower when it comes to personal finances.
0: Absolutely. And I know you're talking to about most college students, this is a universal problem. <laughs> yeah. I did feel like you were directly talking to me <laughs> for most of that. I'll have the same problems where I'll go out and I'll I'll be like, oh, I'm only gonna like like spend like like ten dollars on food yeah. and like you know like maybe I'll get one drink and I'll have like five dollars yeah, for that. Well, i
1: you Got it? No, there's there's actually something in psychology called the "what the heck" effect, right? Yeah. And uh, basically, it's uh, it's rooted in this notion of hot and cold empathetic states. So in a in a cold empathetic states, that's before we go. Right. So I'm not being emotionally triggered in any type of way. There aren't any of the visual cues. There isn't the lighting. There isn't the music in the background. There isn't the banter and the laughter that could get us in a mood to where it's kind of like, oh, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll yeah, forget the $10. Like I'm, I'll, I'll take care of it. I'll figure this out later. Right. Yeah. I'm going to have a good time tonight. So that's a very real thing. And so one of the best strategies for that. Is to there's a notion of the the burn the boats right so if you're gonna go out then and this this is something that I do because I'm not perfect with money I'm self-aware with money so if I know that I don't want to spend more than I need to then guess what the only thing I'm bringing is my driver's license and cash Hmm. I'm not bringing my credit card not bringing my debit card right and then people say well what if what if something happens or whatever it may be the odds are really really low in many instances quite honestly where you would actually need something for a major emergency um, but if I know that I want to stay true or stick to my my plan I make it so that there is no plan B <laughs> yeah. that right is Smart. so it's that like it's not bringing my debit card I'm literally going I'm saying I'm just gonna go get $10 I'm just gonna go get $20 yeah. so once this is gone it's gone I yeah. can't I can't do anything else right yeah and I do that because I know me, because I'm no different than you or anyone else. And yeah. I'm just as susceptible to all these psychological factors and you know, being in an environment and having a good time and all that yeah. jazz of like, oh, I'll get another one. Right? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's human, it is. So the way that we can prevent that is by being self-aware enough and then playing around with what works for us to create healthy boundaries for ourselves and I and I call it the um, becoming while you're becoming type of paradigm right so you can achieve a financial goal even though you're not there behaviorally in terms of your financial savvy and things like because you can create systems so that the goal is going to be worked towards and achieved regardless of where you are because if we all wait until we get there <laughs> Many of us are gonna be waiting a long time because it does take time to change our patterns, our behaviors, our uh, our uh, adaptive responses to things, so on and so forth. So you're you're not alone. I want you all to know that.
0: Absolutely, you're not alone. As I am there too. <laughs> um, I it's just it's just such a it's just it's just a hard world to figure out. Um, and I'm I'm a fourth year college student, but for the past four years, I've been in the same like position where I feel like you know, sometimes I'll be really good about it, and I'll like, you know, yeah. not eat out, and I'll just like, I don't know, like you said, eat some spaghetti at home. Absolutely. But um, I feel like, I feel like past like three or four months, I've just been able, I've been like, I don't know, I've been busy with other stuff, so that yes. that causes like you're like don't yeah. even think about it that much, yeah. and then after a while, you realize your bank bank constantly dwindling, <laughs> and you, like for instance, last night, you know, I went to my girlfriend's screening, a uh, cinematography screening. And then right afterwards, uh, let's go get let's go get a drink at Creature. We did that. You know, it was like eight dollars. Sure. sure, let's go to the grill get some food. Yeah. The grill is expensive. Yeah. I did not think the grill was expensive. The grill is expensive, <laughs> and by the time like by the time you get the platter, you get the milkshake, <laughs> all that stuff adds up. It does. Um, and just like sometimes you just don't prepare for that kind of thing. Yeah. I... And I had the paycheck yesterday, so. <laughs> That's another thing where it's like, I have the money for this. But yeah. then afterwards, I'm like, I won't it, it, in a week.
1: It, yeah, so. It, exactly. Uh, so just kind of piggybacking on your story. Uh, I had never gone to Fogo de Chao um, when I was in college or in my youth or anything like that. So I remember the first time I went on a date with my now wife, uh, we were just – I was leaving my job. And I was like, hey, you want to go get something for dinner? She was like, yeah, sure. And so – at that time, I was living um, not too far from the Vinings area um, in Atlanta. And so we are driving, and I was like, oh, there's this place called Fogo de Chao. You just want to go? And I'm not thinking about how much it's actually yeah. going to cost. And so I had my mind made up that I was going to go buy this really, really nice camera because I love photography. That's why I kind of bring this stuff up. Um, and so we go in, and we walk in the door, and we sit down, and I'm like, is it really, like, are we really talking about like fifty dollars per person here? And I couldn't back out yeah. at that point. But in my mind, I'm playing this scenario, and so by we spent, we ended up spending like $170 oh. a hundred and seventy dollars between everything that we had eaten. And I was like, you know what? I'll just get the camera another time <laughs> <laughs> oh. because I didn't plan for it. I didn't, y'all. I'm sorry. I I never gone to Fogo de Chao. And it was it was a surprise to me too, and uh, and I just had to wait on the the camera. So now, <laughs> before I go somewhere, I'm definitely pulling up the menu just to make sure uh, where we are price point of things. And uh, yeah, so I I completely get it. Yeah. But once you go, you can't just say, "Hey, no, nah, this is this is too much for me. We need to go find somewhere." Yeah. Especially if you're on a date. Like, come on. Yeah. Yeah, there's uh, you get to a point of no return. You got to do the planning ahead of time.
0: Yeah. No, absolutely. <laughs> I've been the exact same scenario. Um there was a moment um Wild rumpus here in Athens mm-hmm. happens every year um Halloween Halloween weekend and me and some friends were like, "Oh, let's go let's go do karaoke at Shoketini." <laughs> um Shogatini's prices are not on some of their menus. <laughs> so, I'm looking at the menus. I'm reading all this great delicious stuff. <laughs> And I'm like, I look at this one thing, and I'm like, oh, that looks delicious. Towards the bottom of the menu, I think that should have been the first sign. Um, And then I get that, and then the guy next to me is just like, oh, I'll just have what he's having. (laughs) It is like three times more than anything on the menu. It's like $45. Wow. And I didn't even notice it. I noticed it right after he said that, and I looked at the other menu, and I saw the price. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. What am I going to do now?
1: Was Was it worth it? No, it was. Not. <laughs> that was the most important question, right? Like sometimes yeah. you'll do something surprising and say, "You know what? I spent a little bit more, but it was amazing." Yeah, right. No, it was
0: good. It was. Right. It might have been twenty five dollars. <laughs> twenty five I got gotcha. you. Yeah, that was a tough moment. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I see. Everyone has a story with these um, things, so, and that,
1: and that's the thing is that we we do all have stories, um, and the stories that we have, craft and how we internalize the stories. Craft the narratives that we utilize to navigate our, our personal finance journeys. And so we're talking about more current stories, but we can go back to stories that you learned in high school, stories that you learned in middle school, stories that you learned um, in elementary school. These stories go way back. What did we learn from our parents? What did we not learn from our parents directly? Financial, sociali- financial socialization, socialization happens in two ways, directly and indirectly. And the way that we perceive things, especially as children, becomes our reality and we internalize it. And the way that we internalize those things causes for us to start to form these emotional connections to money in various ways. Uh, so even as we're thinking about a budget, a budget isn't simply a budget. It, it literally is, when we start to work through it in its entirety, a manifestation of our beliefs and our attitudes and our emotions around line items that we've internalized and labeled a certain way. Some, we may be very neutral in a way that we think about them. Others, it could actually trigger us emotionally in ways that I, w- I don't want to say either healthy or unhealthy. But when we have strong visceral emotions to a particular line item on a on a budget, we have to explore that because it comes from somewhere. It's something that we've labeled. Um, then we, and once we've labeled it, we think about it a certain way. We we have an emotional response in a certain way, and then we create an adaptive response. And then ultimately, what happens over time is that we forget the event that transpired that we labeled to begin with and actually even the label kind of goes away and what happens is it literally becomes the wiring of our brains so when we tell people why don't you just create a budget or why won't you just stick to a budget why don't you do anything you have to understand that you're literally engaging in a process of rewiring your brain that's not something that happens overnight so for anybody who's listening to this if you're navigating your own personal finance journey and things that nature and it's not moving as quickly as you would want, I want you to know that that's par for the course because this process is so much deeper than this thing that you're just seeing on paper. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning, we have to think about this in systems. So let's step back. Now let's think about, we're talking about money as a couple. Right? Yeah. And let's say that you're having a conversation with someone and you, let's say we're having a budgeting meeting and things of that nature. And they have a pain point as it relates to a particular line item on a budget. Now that you know what I've just said, my hope is that you could engage with that person empathetically and compassionately. Because I now know that, hey, there's something more here that needs to explore. So that this creates a time to have a greater intimacy and not greater disconnect, which is ultimately what happens when we reach those pain points. Uh, Because there is a story beneath the numbers and then sometimes the person isn't aware of the story So the beautiful thing about budgeting and having conversations with money about money with friends and family and even with self is that it's a way for us to kind of see our own reflection or to help someone else see something about them that They wouldn't be able to see on their own. So for instance, you're you're looking at me right now. I, I could have something hanging out of my nose I would not know unless you told me (laughs) that it was there. Like everybody sees it, but nobody's going to say anything. But because we're buds, I would hope that you would at least tell me so I can get it out so everybody's not snickering and saying, oh, my goodness, that's big. Um, Right? So what happens is is that it, it creates this reflection process and engaging in a process of budgeting is engaging of, of a process of being seen intimately. And that why that's why it can be very difficult for people to engage with it, because it, it requires a level of intimacy of, of self and others. But like with all things, you don't have to be perfect. Perfection is not required. You just have to start to process. And once you start to process, you develop your capacity for greater and greater intimacy. And I think it's a beautiful thing. I think that's a more elegant and beautiful way to think about budgeting than just simply uh, these are expenses that we need to budget for, this is where money's coming from, and we just need to make sure all the bills are paid. Uh, that's a very transactional way of thinking about money when money is so much more than transactional. It's relational, it's emotional, it's aspirational. It's all these things. And
0: I, I have a few more questions left. Yeah, let's but, go. Um, the first one is mainly pertaining to you. Mm-hmm. Uh what is there was there a particular moment you kind of realized you had a knack for this cuz I feel like this isn't something that's like this isn't something that everyone has like this knowledge this ability yeah. um to be able to talk about this so like so well and like have such a knowledge about it. Mm-hmm. Um so was there like was there any moment you realized you were interested
1: in it and like when you had a knack for it? Um I I would honestly say that I'm I'm very observant quite honestly. And I learned a lot from my mom about money, and these are the what not to do lessons, so to speak uh because you know my mom being young and just trying to figure things out and you know wrestling with her own stuff uh we had to we had to deal with a lot growing up, and so for me, I internalized those messages, and I became a little bit more hyper vigilant when it came to to money um to prevent things from happening, so I've I've always been engaged with it because I saw very early on in terms of if you don't manage it well, these are the things that could happen. Uh, it wasn't until 2008 when we were actually navigating the uh, the Great Recession, and I was working at that other institution, a private institution that this, the, uh, one of the professors in the psychology department, I was walking through their department because it was a quick way to our building, right? And I'm cutting through and then Dr. Kramer comes out and says, is that you, Michael? And I was like, yeah. He was like, do uh, you got a second? I'm like, sure. And he was like, I have this book I want you to read. I'm like, oh. <laughs> Like everybody has a book they want. Like, yeah. if you're at a board meeting, you're mixing and mingling with folks like, oh, yeah, you need to read this book. Like, yeah. there's like a hundred of books to read. Can I just get the cliff note version? Can you just give yeah. me the main point really quickly <laughs> so I can move on with my life? And so I walk into his office and he goes to his shelf and he said, here it is. He's like, if you know, take what you want from it. But I think that this could really help the work that you all are doing. Uh, as we navigate these very difficult times as an institution because we have to still recruit students yeah. and we're at a private institution. that mm-hmm. you know, The cost is a little bit more. The economy is down. What do you think is going to happen with demand? It's going to drive down. Uh, so he shared a book. It was uh, Robert Cialdini's The Psychology of Influence. Um, and I, once I picked it up and started reading it, I couldn't put it down. And it was at that point where I fell in love with personal finance Wealth management, because I was already doing stuff in that regard, uh, but I, I wasn't in love with it. But I I fell in love with it when I started to see the connection of humanity and money and psychology in money. And then I read another book uh, called The Pinnacle of Excellence, and it's a book on sports performance, oddly enough. Mm-hmm. And so sports performance from a mindfulness perspective. And I read that in 2009. And so. Those two books, thinking about a practitioner who works with Olympians, who engaged them in deep breathing exercises, uh, visualization exercises to achieve peak performance and excellence, it really intrigued me. And I said, well, if we have mindfulness in sports to get people to achieve in excellent ways, if we can use psychology to nudge behaviors in a less than optimal way, could we actually use psychology to encourage people to do what's best for themselves? Because I realized, especially working in academia, was that people don't always do what's in their best interest, even though that they can barely see. They can very. I think there's everybody listening right now knows that consuming too much processed foods and things of that nature is, could be bad for them, right? But then my question is, how often within this past week have you stopped and said, you know what, I really don't need to consume more than (laughs) so much in processed foods? But inherently, we know that that's the case. So, well, maybe then, how could we use psychology, data visualization, mindfulness practices, and all these different areas to create systems, right, to either prevent someone from doing, remember what I was talking about earlier, like burn the boats, right, create systems to achieve their goals. So you don't have to rely on willpower because willpower will fail us at some point. Um, and so I started applying that to the families that we worked with, and then I was doing more, I was doing a lot of outreach in terms of personal finances and started employing a lot of what I was learning in psychology and mindfulness. Um, and my love for that just kept growing and growing and growing, and I just started reading more on psychology, more on personal finance and wealth and things of that nature. And for me, I just, at a certain point, it was like, I can't differentiate these things. Money is purely a manifestation, again, a manifestation of the way people feel or emote something about themselves under various circumstances and conditions. Um, So if we can understand the circumstances and the conditions, then we can lean into an empathetic way of engaging with people so that we don't make money purely transactional because it's purely, it's also relational. So. That's where my journey began in terms of understanding relationships around money with self, other, community, families, and then also then thinking about technology now, right? How is technology being designed and created to encourage and influence people or these nudges to buy something, yeah. right? And we have to understand that as you're navigating your financial wellness journey, you're navigating a system. When you walk into Target, or when you walk into Walmart, or when you go to an online website, or if you pull up the Robinhood app on your phone, if you're investing, these platforms, these uh, store spaces are designed strategically with lighting, with sound, with placement, to encourage you to do what they need you to do for their profitability. And when you start to realize that in every space that you're navigating, it's been systematically designed to nudge your behaviors. It's almost like the matrix, right? Yeah. You Now you get to see the world for what it is, and you can now then now have the self-awareness to recognize that, oh, this person just tried to nudge me mm-hmm. in the way that they came and communicated, the way that they introduced themselves, they built rapport, they probably engaged in a law of reciprocity, which meaning that they try to give you something for free first, Right. Because then what we know about the law of reciprocity is that generally when people give back, they give back more than what they've been given initially. Right. So you start to see these things and then you can ask yourself, was this something that I really came here for? I appreciate your bid to get me to buy the thing and you did it masterfully and beautifully. But no, thank you. Right. But I do appreciate how you designed and set it all up. It was amazing. It was extraordinary. (laughs) Right. But then you're going to come into somebody who's going to do the same thing for the thing that you're looking for. Right. And if you get it at the price point or whatever it may be, then it's okay. It's just being able to see that you are navigating a system. And then sometimes when we make buying decisions, it isn't always because of it's what we intended to do. It's what we were nudged to do. Right. And I think that that's incredibly important. And that's where that's why I speak about this in a way that I speak about it. Because, again, you have the book knowledge, and then I've served thousands of families in terms of financial counseling and coaching and all that good stuff. And there there are a lot of things that themes that come up over and over and over again, and it just reinforces my desire to speak to the um, neurological side of things, the emotional side of things, psychological side of things. And uh, I think that there's a lot of power there when thinking about it in the context of money.
0: Absolutely, no, absolutely, um, and that's uh, kind of how I imagined that you got into it, just, <laughs> just like I don't know, just like somehow it had to had to be a book. Yeah, and that's I know, really right? cool, there's, and I'm gonna have to check that book out now too. It's always a book. It's always, always a, it, a it, book. It, it is always a book, yeah. and it's really cool. But it,
1: I, I, th- I think that you would you would enjoy it, especially with the work that you all do, um, to to encourage gentle nudges, but to do it ethically. Working in the space that you work in and adhering to an ethical standard, but then also being competitive in the marketplace to be viable is so incredibly important. And so, and that was the beauty behind influence. It was like, well, if you can use the same thing to get someone to do the wrong thing, can you use the same thing to get them to do, generally speaking, what would be the optimal financial thing? And so, when I set things up, when I work for clients, I'm thinking about what they're telling me and how we can approach it utilizing oh, so case in point here with budgets um, generally when we when someone hands you a budget they hand you a sheet with a lot of different headers for categories and then line items in each of those categories and sometimes we're talking about maybe six or seven categories with maybe 3 4 5 line items each and at the very end of that You'll have the totals of spending in particular areas and you have the sum totals in those particular categories and you sum it all up. When you look at that sheet initially, it's intimidating, it's overwhelming because it's not just putting the information down. It's not need to go back and find the information, right? And maybe I'm not an organized person. So now before I can even begin to do this, I have to get organized just to do this and there's a reason why I'm not organized because I probably have a lot going on. I don't have time to clean up. I don't have time to put stuff. I'm just constantly going. So then we have to think about where we are in our life at that point and decision fatigue is real, right? So then we're thinking about systems there. So one of the things that I do when I work with clients is that I break out the the budget. So I'll have a handful of tabs on the bottom of Excel sheet. So let's say I'll set them up to, to have the budget completed over a week. So on the first tab, all they see is just their income sources. And that's all they have to input for that day. And if you do that, kudos, congratulations, you've won. Takes no more maybe for most people 10 minutes or so. And even even if they need to go back and confirm certain information, no more than 20 minutes to do that one project. And then the next one, next day, Tuesday, just household expenses. They don't see the entirety of the budget, They only focus on household expenses. So, And if you've ever done a budget, you know how it's so easy to be working on one thing and you look at something and it takes you down a rabbit hole and you lose focus on the one thing that you're doing and it gets all over. So we're just focusing on one thing and that's all you see, right? And I have another hidden tab that they don't see that's actually, once they're inputting information on these other items, it's actually creating the entirety of the budget so they don't have to see it all in its entirety. And what happens is it lessens the emotional response. You're not looking at whether or not you're operating at a, at a deficit or a surplus uh, in these things. And a deficit meaning that you're um, bringing in less money than you're spending. Surplus meaning that you're bringing in more money than you're spending. And I gray things out so it's it's neutral in terms of balances. So you're not seeing red and all these other different things. Because the goal is to actually get you to engage in a process of doing. That's the goal. The budget is secondary. Once we get you in a process of doing effectively, then we develop the emotional capacity to neutrally handle different elements of the spending plan or budget. And then once we've done that, then what I say is, hey, which one would you like to work on? And we just focus on one area at a time to start to build momentum. So I'm really big in small steps. Momentum, uh, minimizing emotional stimulation Right. And simplifying it so you can see it in small gradual steps and develop momentum. And that is that's inherent in the literature that I've read. Everything that I've just talked about, even though it seems very simple and basic, it's basic, it's all rooted in uh empirical evidence. All of it. All right. So yeah. yeah. Wow. It's
0: just really fascinating. Yeah, you don't right? have to
1: do it one way. And unfortunately yeah. in our space, for individuals who aren't where I am. Individuals who aren't where our department is and my colleagues are, and we've been in this space for a very long time in terms of thinking about everything that I've been talking about up to this point. What they'll do is they'll just give somebody a budget and say, do the budget, and if the person doesn't do the budget, they say, well, that person doesn't care about their finances and their well-being. Is it really really that they don't care about their finances or well-being? Or maybe you introduced something into their system that created more overwhelm and they were already overwhelmed to begin with. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like it like when you really think about this just from a human element perspective, was it really them or was it us and we need to do better in a way that we communicate present data visualizations to individuals that promote um uh, that that motivates them and doesn't demotivate them. And that's what I'm all about.
0: Absolutely. Um and I guess before you go, I do have one more question. Yeah, let's do it. Um, just a quick question. So, um, you know, we've talked about so many subjects on like this already. <laughs> and everything you said You see is how just, my brain works. It's, yeah, it's no, all over the place. It's great. No, it, it's great, though. <laughs> it's great. Um, and I feel like I've learned a lot already. Um, but what is, like, w- the number one piece of advice that you tell your students about managing their finances? Mm-hmm. Like, the number one thing –
1: Anyway, every now and Every night we touch some stuff already. Right yeah yeah I, all right so this is this is the number one thing. So I teach the um, here at the University of Georgia. I teach the intro to personal for, intro to personal finance class that's open for all students across all majors. Um, and the number one thing that I tell students every year there are two. Can I share two? Yeah. All right The first one is that money is not the main thing you are. That's the that's the most important thing that I tell them. Money is not the most important thing you are. Money is a tool to help you connect to the things that you find of value. So this class is going to be more about self-exploration than it is going to be about money. And if there was ever a time to actually have space to be able to think about self, my money stories, money scripts, that's what we would call them, um, my interactions, my internal self-talk as it relates to money, my emotions, my systems that I'm navigating, whether they promote suboptimal behaviors or optimal financial behaviors, those are important things that we need to explore. Because the, the more self-aware I am, um, even though my financial wellness journey may look different than others because I may need different tools, I may need different boundaries or fewer boundaries, but it doesn't matter how I get there. It just matters that I get there. So it really is about a personal journey, not a comparison journey, all yeah. right? And then the second thing would be is just don't trust me because I have a PhD <laughs> or because I have other certifications. I I I challenge my students to challenge me and and do it out of respect because if you're working with a professional, that professional should be able to educate you in a way that you understand so that you can make a decision that you're confident in as it relates to your personal finances. And that's, a, that's incredibly important because I feel as if we're navigating spaces more and more and more where we're no longer questioning anything or anyone or vetting and asking tough questions. Um, and if there's a time again to start that process, why not start it with your professor right yeah. if because i i and i joke about this in class i have students who i know if they go to a restaurant and they ask for fish and the waiter brought them meatloaf that they wouldn't say a thing right yeah. they would not send it back they would be incredibly polite and kind they wouldn't ask for what they said you're about you're about to pay for something that you did not ask for right <laughs> and so it's 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 one of the first ways to start to engage in what we would call efficacy or self-efficacy or economic agency, uh, which is recognizing your power and recognizing your voice. Yes, you respect the person as a professional, but it's your money, right? And anything that you sign off on is going to say that you are agreeing to whatever the consequences are, outcomes are, of whatever it may be. And it's very important for you to slow down, not allow anyone to rush you to making a decision uh, so that you can make decisions that you're confident in. And, th- and there's nothing wrong with asking questions of people of whom you feel are the authority figure. Just because you're an authority figure doesn't mean that you're beyond being questioned. It means that you are the appropriate person to ask the question too. And so those are the two big things. I don't want them just to trust me. I want to earn their trust and I want to continue to earn their trust. And just because you've earned someone's trust doesn't mean that you're just naturally trustworthy for the rest of your life. This is a constant process of of being the thing that you said that you were. Um, But then also empowering them to use their voice to speak up for themselves and to ask questions And to not let anyone make them feel as if they're less than for asking the questions. Because if that person is, then we're not working with the right person. And we'll just go back to the drawing board and find someone else who will answer the questions. And so it's, yeah, so it's those two things. Money isn't the main thing. You are. And then the second thing is really engage in self-efficacy and economic agency in this process by utilizing your voice and not leaning into guilt or shame if you feel as if you don't know something, uh, that's a part of becoming and it's a part of growth. And that means that you're on the right track if you're doing that. So I try to destigmatize some things on that end so that they're, they're engaging in the tool set that will serve them regardless of how the landscape looks. There's information that I'm teaching on next year, on this year, that's already changed going into next semester. right. There's a law recently passed with 529 plans where now individuals can draw down from 529 plans to to pay for different certifications. Like if you're sitting for CFP exam or X, Y and Z, you can now use those money, those resources for that. You couldn't do that before. Right. And even with 529 plans, you couldn't use those resources for private education uh, in secondary schooling. That has opened up. Right. So as long as we have the tools to be able to ask the right questions and to not be afraid to ask questions, we're always going to be in position to be able to get the optimal answers that are rooted and aligned with what it is that we desire. What's what brings us fulfillment in life and to know that intimately um, to achieve our goals. And that will always serve them. Well, information is going to change. And so I'm trying to pair them for that element of it and to be, Uh, intellectually curious as they navigate their journey my
0: gosh i feel like i've learned a lot of things here and i'm sure everyone listening has (laughs) also learned a lot of things um and you make a lot of great points with those with those two points and i i guess that's about all i have but thank you so much for joining me on this show um you've been a great guest i appreciate
1: it and i love this setup this is nice yes
0: thank you this is
1: nice it's red and black is doing it big over here y'all
0: <laughs> thank you so much is there anything else you would like to add before i let you go
1: actually no i am just incredibly appreciative appreciative of uh, being in, invited to to come and, and and speak to students i hope that this was of a value um, take from it whatever it is that that you need at this point discard the rest, right? This is a, this is a process of engaging in your own agency, uh, so to speak. But I really do hope that uh, you got a lot of value out of this. And again, I'm just grateful to be here. Absolutely, thank you
0: so much again. This has been the front page. The front page is a production of the Red and Black Publishing Company. Make sure to download our app and keep up with us on social media. Don't forget to check out our other weekly podcast, Between the Headphones, a UJ Sports Podcast. We hope to see you next week.